Before we get started this evening, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we can come together this evening, that we can study your word, that we have a complete canon of scripture, sufficient revelation, and we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who teaches us, who guides us, and as we walk by the Spirit, he's the one who helps us to understand these things, stores them in our soul, and recalls them to our our memory. Father, we pray that as we study about the Lord Jesus Christ this evening, that we may continue to marvel at this uh, wonderful salvation that you have provided for us and the remarkable plan that you have worked out in history and all of the various dimensions of it. Father, we pray that as we study this and we study the principles as they relate to our own spiritual life, that we may be challenged to go forward, to advance, to mature and to put our focus on our Lord who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5 focuses on the superiority of Jesus Christ's priesthood. And it just gets going before all of a sudden the writer interrupts himself and in the sixth chapter goes into the next major, uh, next major warning. The first four verses, which we've studied already, focuses on the fact that, that in the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood that characterized Israel under the Mosaic law, that a priest was appointed not by man, it wasn't self-appointed. In fact, we looked the last two weeks at the situations where there were those within Israel who tried to put themselves forward to be priests, who tried to... Uh, set themselves up in uh, competition with Aaron. First of all, we had his two sons, who Nadab and Abihu, who tried to bring strange fire incense into the uh, tent of meeting, and God killed them. Numbers chapter 10, I mean Leviticus chapter 10. And then in Numbers, we saw that there was the uh, Dathan and Abiram and Korah rebellion against the Aaronic priesthood. So it's clear from the Old Testament that God appointed Aaron and he wasn't going to allow any kind of competition. And one of the things that God is showing in that was that there's only one way to God. This theme just keeps coming along throughout Scripture is God defines how the creature can come into his presence. It's not up to the creature to decide how he's going to come before God. It is how God defines the situation. There's only one priesthood. There was only one legitimate priesthood under the Mosaic Covenant, and that was the Aaronic priesthood. And the high priest under the Mosaic Code was a human being, also guilty of sin, so he had to bring sacrifices for himself before he could offer sacrifices for the nation. And the writer of Hebrews makes the point in those first four verses that he was one who therefore, because he was fully human, could understand and have compassion on those who came to bring sacrifices, and he wasn't to judge them, but that he could uh, have compassion on uh, those who had committed various sins. But his ultimate responsibility was to represent man to God in the uh, Levitical offerings. The conclusion, he says, is that no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God. In other words, the function of the high priest was not a human-ordained institution. Uh, 
God is the one who selected and defined who the priest would be. Then we come to verse 5. Verse 5 begins, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. The word there also indicates a comparison with the Aaronic priesthood, and this is indicated by the first word that appears in the Greek, huto, which indicates a general reference to the previous discussion in this same way as the human priesthood of Aaron, so that there were certain aspects of the Aaronic priesthood that would be carried over into the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In that way, we see that the Aaronic priesthood functioned as a type of Christ, a shadow image of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can say that in the same way as the human priesthood of Aaron was appointed by God, so also Christ's priesthood is a result of a divine appointment. Now the main verb in this first clause is glorify. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. This is the word doxazo. The noun is doxa, which means to glorify, which is where we get our English word doxology. That's what we a lot of Christians sing on Sunday morning, uh, praising God's glory. Holy, holy, holy. So also Christ did not glorify himself, doxazo. Now, What's interesting here is when you pay attention to the Greek tense, it's an aorist tense meaning uh, completed action in the past. And as a constitutive aorist, it is the basic use of the aorist, which looks at the action in its entirety and simply summarizes it without reference to its beginning, its progress, its end or duration. It's just a simple past tense that looks back into the past and just summarizes the action. This is something that happened in the past. Christ did not glorify himself as opposed to other human priesthoods that are based on self-glorification. There's a clear implication here in contrast with what was happening to the high priesthood in Israel at this time because this was a period uh, near the end of the Jewish state when they are so severely under the thumb of Roman authority so that the high priest was not even appointed according to any kind of Mosaic regulation. They were appointed by political appointment and the approval of Rome. So the, the whole institution of the temple was being run by uh, Roman authority. And here we have this contrast that Christ, in contrast to self-glorification of human priests and in contrast to uh, this other, did not glorify himself to become the high priest. And then we get an interesting word there. That word to become is the heiress passive infinitive of purpose of Genomai, which means to experience a change in one's nature, to become something that you weren't before. Something comes into existence. And this shows that Jesus Christ, though he is an eternal son, which is the, the emphasis in the quote from Psalm uh, 2, uh, 
4 that's in the uh, at the end there you are my son today i have uh, today i have begotten you the emphasis there is on the eternal sonship of the lord jesus christ rather that's two, psalm 27 that is the emphasis on the eternal sonship of christ so he is eternally a son but he becomes a high priest he is not eternally a high priest that is something that a, a responsibility or a role that he took on with his choice to become uh, the Savior and Messiah. So the emphasis in this verse is on the fact that Christ was not involved in self-glorification, self-promotion, and becoming high priest and taking on this role to be the Savior and to offer himself as a sacrifice for mankind because that's one of the primary roles of a, of a high priest is to offer sacrifices for man. So the verb there, the, the infinitive of purpose, completes the thought that is expressed in the verb. He didn't glorify himself for the purpose of becoming high priest. So we could translate this. So also, Christ did not exalt his status for the purpose of becoming high priest. In contrast to those who are putting themselves forward, even Lucifer, who sought to be God. Even Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden who were tempted by the lure of the fruit, that if you eat of the fruit, you'll become like God. Jesus Christ, in contrast to that, isn't exalting himself for his own purposes. Now, as soon as we look at this verb, the the connection between the main verb of glorification and the completion of that glorification and becoming something, first thing that hit me was that this takes us right back to a basic understanding of the incarnation of Christ and the pre, God's pre-existent plan in relation to salvation. So we have to go to Philippians chapter 2. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. This is one of two or three key passages for understanding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2. And we go to Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and in that section, we have one of the most sophisticated explanations in all of Scripture on the relationship between the deity and the humanity of Christ, the doctrine of the uh, hypostatic union. And when we come there, I like to point out that this is not just some sort of theological discussion on that hangs out there in sort of an abstract discussion on uh, Christology or the hypostatic union. It is, there's a purpose to this. I was involved in a discussion this afternoon with someone, and we were just talking about the fact that when you look at Scripture and the Bible, the Bible doesn't view theology or doctrine as something that just sort of exists in an abstract uh, academic sense. Now, this is sort of a perversion, I think, that's occurred over time in church history where they've separated the study of theology and it becomes a very sophisticated academic intellectual exercise, uh, much like philosophy or some other intellectual discipline, 
and then the the terms theology and doctrine are attached to that. So you go to a seminary bookstore somewhere and you buy a book on basic doctrines and it, you read it and people come away saying, oh, well, that's interesting, but how does that make any difference in the way I think or the way I live? It, it just becomes a, somehow divorced or separated from day-to-day thought and life. And that is such a perversion of the Scripture because, as a seminary professor of mine used to say, theology that isn't practical isn't biblical. Theology that isn't practical isn't biblical because what theology ultimately does is tell us about the structure of the universe and reality. And if it is done in such a way that we don't see, and this is really what happens most of the time, you see people come out of seminary, they have... Uh, their advanced degrees, but they don't know how to explain the concepts in Scripture so that it makes a difference in the way people think and interact with life. And so they just understand, oh, the doctrine of the hypostatic union or Jesus is both God and man. That's nice, but, you know, I have a marriage problem or I have a uh, problem with uh, raising my children or I have... Uh, Uh, an addiction or sin problem, whatever it may be, help me with that. And they don't understand that, no, you biblically, in order to address the problems that we have in life, the adversities that come either from external circumstances or that are self-generated through our own sin nature, we have to understand these fundamental doctrines because they structure our thinking and give, give a framework within which we are then able to understand God's solutions to various problems. And so when you come to Philippians chapter 2, there is a backdrop to this uh, exhortation. That's what we have in verse 5. It is a command in verse 5 of chapter 2 to let this mind, this kind of thinking, be in you. Why? Because apparently there was some problem going on in the congregation. Now, one of the things that's always fun about dealing with people is that we all just have sin natures, and when people let their sin natures run uncontrolled, it always produces friction, it always produces problems, and that can manifest itself in marriages, it can manifest itself in families, it can manifest itself at the workplace. You go through life, you have a group of people working together in a team and all of a sudden one person starts getting arrogant and self-absorbed and next thing you know you don't even see it coming the team just fragments and there's all of a sudden competition within the team one person's doing one thing and backbiting gossiping against another person and you just wonder what in the world happened it just sometimes it just comes out of left field. It, the same thing can happen within a family. It can happen within a marriage. People are going along, they're just happy and 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 growing together, and then it just seems like out of the blue, there's there's friction and there's fighting and there's argument and there's strife. We touched on this a little bit on uh, Sunday morning. That's what happened in the family, or whether it was Tuesday night. When we were in Genesis, that was what was happening in the family of Isaac because there was carnality. That is evidence, Galatians 5, uh, 17 through 19, strife and dissension and contention is all a work 
work of the flesh, and it just rears its ugly head. And so we have to have, as believers, we have to have certain tools to handle that on our own. Are we part of the problem? Are we part of the solution? Are we the one that's operating on arrogance? And often that's hard for us to see because we get blinded by our own arrogance because when we get involved in those uh, arrogant skills and we move from self-absorption then we go to uh, self-indulgence, and then we move to self-justification, and we're, we get into that pattern of self-justification. We blind ourselves, which goes to self-deception, and we don't see that we're as much a part of the problem as anybody else because we're operating on our own agenda. And in the process of, dry, uh, of operating on our own agenda, we forget that we're here to serve the Lord and His agenda and not our agenda, whatever the circumstances may be. And so we have to uh, pull ourselves back. So that is apparently the situation or part of the situation that was going on in Philippians. For example, you have it uh, brought out in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul says, I implore Euodia and uh, Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So there's obviously two people whose personal conflict with one another is now affecting the whole congregation. We don't know if it was only their conflict, but he singles those two individuals out to be marked by all eternity as examples of of sin natures run amok in the Scriptures. Aren't you glad God's not writing Scripture uh, anymore and using us as examples, negative examples in the Word. So there's obviously this problem of a contentiousness, strife, discord within the congregation. And so the principles for the solution to this that apply to you in your in a marriage and family and business relationships and friendships, whatever it is, it has to do with dealing with basic people testing that at some point we have to uh, stifle that arrogance of the sin nature. And, of course, as only believers have the opportunity to really put that in check because of the, their relationship with God and the Holy Spirit uh, leading their life. Unbelievers can only uh, reach a pseudo-humility because they don't have, uh, they're not regenerate, they don't have the Holy Spirit, and so they can't produce anything that doesn't come out of the sin nature. They don't have another nature like believers do. So they can only uh, exercise a certain amount of self-control in order to bring that into uh, into control. So what Paul says in the beginning of Philippians chapter 2 is in the first four verses is to emphasize foundational realities that are true for every believer by virtue of our position in Jesus Christ. He is drawing a, an inference in verse 1, therefore, and then he follows this by the use of several first-class conditions in the Greek. And a first-class condition in the Greek is a way of expressing an if clause, if this, if that, and there's four different ways that are used in Koine Greek to express the if condition, and this is what's called the first class condition. Only three are actually used in Scripture. There's a debate over the fourth one. There's only one possible uh, place where that's used, and it's incomplete, so we're not going to go there. This isn't a study on Greek grammar. 
if there is any consolation, if and there is, it almost has the idea of sense. Now, sense is not the correct way to translate a first-class condition, but it does get the thrust across to us. Since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and mercy, this is all within the body of Christ, then the command, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. That's the command in the first four verses. Now, being like-minded means to have the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, thinking the same thing. In other words, this person can't be operating on their agenda, and this other person operating on their agenda, and a third person operating on their agenda. There needs to be one thought. Uh, Hosea, God says, How can two walk together unless they be agreed? Fundamental principle. When you get two people and one of them starts operating on their own agenda apart from the other one, there's a fragmentation. It takes two people to make a marriage work, but it only takes one person to mess it up. You can have a family working well together and one person decides to operate on their own agenda and it brings discord and disharmony to the whole family. Same thing can happen uh, at work or anywhere else. You get one person who's more concerned about them than the team, and everything falls apart. So Paul says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Let nothing be done, in verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, Let each esteem others better than himself. So there has to be a proper perspective on our relationship to one another. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And that's just a summary. I'm not going through the first four verses in detail, but just to see that there is a foundation that since there are certain realities that we all share in common because of our position in Christ, and because of our position in Christ, it's true for all of us because of grace. None of us deserve it. Every one of us is a fragmented sinner because of the possession of the sin nature. But we have these realities in Christ that if we are walking by means of the Spirit, then these can be brought into play. And that is how that's the only way that the command of verse 2 can be brought about. So this is a sense of of unity among uh, self-oriented sinners. And then there's the positive command not to do anything from selfish selfish ambition. Then he gives an example. See, that's where this whole passage on this, this most remarkable statement of the person and work of Christ, or the person of Christ, is an example to us of how we can fulfill those mandates in verse 4, that each one of us look out not for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, how do you do that? Well, he says, here's the example. He's not going to give an illustration from some great figure of history. He's not going to give an example from some individual of the Old Testament. He doesn't go to Moses, even though Moses is considered the most humble person in the Old Testament. He goes to the benchmark of humility, which is the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state as God. That becomes the model for us of Humility in this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
the mandate to have this attitude is the Greek word for neo, which means to think, to reason, to have a certain mental attitude. It's a present imperative, which means this is to be a standard characteristic of the believer's life. Present imperatives emphasize ongoing attitudes. It's a standard operating procedure. Have this mentality, have this mental attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He is the standard for our, uh, for our attitude, especially when you get into those knockdown, drag out relationship problems. Verse 6. Who, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So let's look at this. Although he existed in the form of God. This is a present active participle of the verb huparko, which has to do with, uh, with ongoing existence. And it's the idea of Concession that although or even though he existed in the form of God, and that word form is the Greek word morphe. Now, morphe was a word that was used in uh, philosophical discourse in ancient Greece, and so it had a technical meaning. It's not just the, the external uh, structure or shape of something, but it was used to refer to the internal structure of something, that which made uh, something what it what it was, so that an animal, a dog, had the morphe of dogness in it, and a, a chair has the morphe of chairness, and it has the essence of chairness. So that uh, you take a chair like this, and you have another kind of chair at home. You have a lawn chair, you have a, a lazy boy recliner, you have all kinds of different chairs. But what makes a chair a chair is that it has, according to Greek philosophy, it has this essence of chairness in it. And so you, as an individual, when you go to a store, you may have never seen that kind of chair before. But when you look at it, you know it's a chair, don't you? Because we all have this, this knowledge. It's amazing how we learned that growing up. But that's what they were getting at is how do you understand universal so that when you, uh, when you watch a small child, and he's out there in the in the neighborhood, and you've got a little two or three year old, and they're just learning vocabulary, and they they see a, a chihuahua, and you say that's a dog, and they see a, a poodle, and they say that's a dog. Well, when they see a German Shepherd, they don't say cat, do they? They figure it out that that's a dog. They've never seen that before, but they know that's a dog. And this is how God has structured our minds to work, so that as we learn certain universals, then when we see something that we've never seen before, our mind is able to take that and we automatically categorize that into, uh, into its right category. And that's because we're able to identify what that essence is. And that was called in Greek philosophy the morphe of something. So when we say here that he existed in the form of God, it's not talking about the structure or shape of God but the internal essence or nature of deity. And so the, uh, Paul says that although Jesus Christ existed in the nature of God, and that existence would have been eternal existence, never-ending existence, he was always God. As the Nicene uh, Creed put it, he was 
He was very God of very God, true God of true God. He was eternally God. Although he existed in the morphe or the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, when is this happening? Is this happening before the incarnation or after the incarnation? It's happening before the incarnation. This is happening in eternity past as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in the holy huddle, which is called the Council of Divine Decrees, and they're setting out the game plan for salvation. And so he doesn't regard, again, this is a thought word. We're to do what? We're to have a mental attitude in us, phroneo. And so this is focusing on the thought of Jesus Christ, his mentality. He, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the word for regard is the Greek word hegeomai which means to engage in an intellectual process to think, to consider, to regard. So it's thinking. Now, don't lose the ball for all the details. What's the command? The command here is to have humility, to be able to fulfill the mandate back in verse 4, not to look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Don't be involved, in other words, in self-glorification, but glorification of others. That's what Hebrews 5.5 5 is talking about. Jesus didn't seek glorification for himself in becoming a high priest. The model for us is we're not to seek self-glorification, but to look out for the interests of others. So we are supposed to have a mental attitude. This isn't a feeling. It isn't an emotion. It's not something that some people have and other people don't have. Frankly, it's something nobody has unless it's done through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate state, in eternity past, did not consider, did not think that equality with God was something to be uh, something to be grasped. So... The Lord Jesus Christ, in corrected translation, who, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, although he eternally existed with identical essence to God, did not think, did not consider that this is something that should be grasped after. So this thinking, this mental attitude was part of his deity because it's happening before the incarnation, right? We have to think about that. So the model here is related beginning with his mental attitude in deity. So he didn't think that equality with God was something to be grasped after, and that's a very picturesque Greek word, harpagmas, which means to violently seize something. It's related to the verb harpazo, which is the word for, that, that comes to be translated the rapture in First Thessalonians 4, uh, 16 through 18, that the Lord Jesus Christ will come back in the air and will be caught up to be with him. It means to be seized or taken somewhere. Uh, so the noun form here, harpagmas, has to do with the violent seizure of property or, or robbery, and it has uh, the idea of claiming or asserting title by gripping something or grasping something. It's grabbing on to something that may not be uh, someone's ha- that you may have a, a, a right to. And the contrast that Paul's making here is that 
Adam and Eve were grabbing for that fruit. They were grabbing after deity. They wanted to be like God. They weren't God, but they wanted to be like God. That's what the temptation was. If you eat of that fruit, you'll be like God. Ooh, that's good. I can be just like God. So Jesus, who was God, has the opposite view. He's not into self-promotion. He doesn't want to promote himself even to advance his own rightful deity as a leader. Now, that is set in contrast, of course, to not only Adam's fall, but also to Satan's fall. Satan is grasping after deity. He wants to be like God. Five I wills in Isaiah 14. Satan wanted to be like God, like the Most High, and to run the universe. So in contrast to the arrogance and the grasping nature of Satan, you have the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who exemplifies just the opposite. Because you see, in the plan of God, what's important is not to be the leader who rules or asserts itself over man, but to be a servant. So in the angelic conflict, what you continually have is how the plan of God emphasizes character qualities that are in direct contrast to the character qualities that are exemplified by Satan and therefore by the sin nature and the cosmic system. So it calls for a complete change in your values. So if you are a uh, if you're involved in business, if you're involved at your place of work, if you have any responsibility over other people as a leader, then your whole concept of leadership changes if you're a believer because your concept of leadership and authority is transformed because the model for leadership is now that of a servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, as opposed to the model that the world puts forth, which is somebody who is uh, gathering power and authority to themselves so that they can promote uh, their own agenda, being motivated, of course, by everything from power lust to uh, approbation lust and uh, everything along the way. So the Lord Jesus Christ, although he eternally existed with identical essence to God the Father, did not think equality with God was a claim to be advanced or asserted. So he's not going to set himself up to be high priest. He's not into self-promotion. In contrast, verse 7, he emptied himself. Now that's that famous word that we run across, kanao, which means to uh, make empty or to empty. That's where you get the kenosis problem because liberals came along and they said, oh, he gave up his deity or he uh, was become less than God, so he, he just becomes a man. But the idea here must be, or the idea of the word must be defined by the context. The context tells us how he emptied himself. And he doesn't empty himself by giving up deity, by becoming less than God. He takes on something. Something is added to his eternal deity. He never gives up anything. He is still fully God in the incarnation. So he empties himself. And then we have two key participles, taking and being made. And they are 
adverbial participles, and they should be understood as instrumental. Now, that an instrumental participle then will tell you how he empties himself. He empties himself by taking the form of a bondservant. So if you insert that little preposition by, it's going to give you a better understanding of what's going on here. How does Jesus humble himself? He takes on the form of a what? Of a leader, of a king, of a prince? No, of a bondservant. He comes meek and lowly riding on the foal of a donkey. He doesn't come fitting the preconceived notions of fallen man that this is how leaders should function and operate. So he changes the whole dynamic of what leadership is all about. He empties himself by receiving Lombano, taking on the form of a servant. And secondly, by being made in the likeness of men. Now the word form there, form of a bondservant, is the same word that we had earlier with the essence of God. So he takes on the form, the morphe, the nature of a bondservant. So something is added to his deity. It's added in the sense that he brings in a second nature. Now there's no merger of the, nat- the, the natures. There's no intermingling of the attributes. And this is what we call the hypostatic union. That in the incarnation... The undiminished deity of Christ added to itself, to a na- the, in, in terms of the nature, a human nature. So that within the person of Christ, you have two natures. Undiminished deity and true humanity that are united together in one person forever. So this goes on forever and ever. Jesus Christ, ten billion years from now, is still going to be in hypostatic union. And that won't ever change. He doesn't reach some point in eternity future where he sloughs off like an old snakeskin his humanity. He is in hypostatic union forever. He takes on the form of a bond sermon and by being made, and there we have that same verb that we have in Hebrews 5, the verb genomai, to become something that he wasn't before. And that's what's important. It, it, it fascinating study. These words that we have in Greek for existence, there's three words for existence. There's the word to be, a me, is. Something is. For example, in the beginning was the word. That's the imperfect tense of a me. In the beginning was the word, indicating ongoing eternal existence because the imperfect tense in the Greek has to do with continual action in past time. So you have in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so in the first uh, three verses of the Gospel of John, you have this emphasis on on the eternal existence of Jesus Christ. He was, he was, he was. It's ongoing existence. And then you get to the fourth verse, and it says, Now there was a man named John. Now see, what's the verb in the English? There was a man named John. It's was. It's the same verb in English that you have in the first three verses. In the beginning was the word. But in Greek it shifted. It went from a me, which indicated ongoing existence, to genomai, which indicates coming into existence. 
and that's the contrast in in first i mean in 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 John one is that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was and the Word was eternal, but John came into existence. There was a man who came into existence. John's the creature in contrast to Jesus Christ, who's the creator and has eternal existence. And then the other word that we have is one that we saw back in verse 6 is huparko, uh, who being in the form of God. So these are the three words that you use in Greek to express existence. Well, here we have genomai, the same word that we have in Hebrews 5.5, 5, that Jesus Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, to have something come into existence. So he empties himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being made into and adding something that he didn't already have. Something came into existence, the physical form of a man. By means of taking the form of a servant and by means of coming into existence in the likeness of man, schemati in the Greek, which means the outward outward form of a man. Philippians 2.8 And being found in appearance as a man. Now we're post-incarnation, aren't we? Up to this point, we have understood humility as exemplified as a divine characteristic. But now what we see is this same uh, virtue being exemplified in hypostatic union. So it is not simply uh, a, an attribute of deity that someone might say, well, that's, of course, that's God, that's unachievable. This shows that it's flowing now. It is part of it, his humanity, and he exemplifies it in his humanity. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the first word there is hurisco, which means to discover something, to find something. It's an aorist passive participle, which... Uh, precedes the action of a main verb. So he's found, he's discovered, he appears as a man, schema, which is the outward shape, form, or appearance of someone. So being found in appearance as a man, he has a human body now that has been, uh, and, and a human nature that has been added to his deity. Being found as in appearance as a man, he humbles himself. Uh, and the Greek word there is tapainao, which means to humble yourself, to see yourself in proper relationship to reality, to place yourself under authority. Humility, hu- humility in the scripture and meekness, that's the other word that we don't understand in our culture very well. The Greeks didn't understand it either. In fact, to them, somebody who was humble really had a problem. Because if you weren't tooting your own horn, who would? So this idea of of giving up your rights. I used to when the first time I did a word study on this, I was teaching in public school. Now if you want a lesson in humility, just go get in a classroom and that was thirty years ago. And I and when I taught school even though I was certified in history and English, I graduated so late in the summer that I couldn't find a teaching job. The only thing that opened up 
and I was hoping it would develop into something else, but God had other plans, was that I ran an in-school suspension class in Channel View, Texas. That was just a lovely place to be, and those were just some of the loveliest children because instead of suspending kids, somewhere somebody came up with the bright idea that, you know, when we suspend kids and send them home, the state doesn't give us money because they're not there. So let's figure out a way where we can keep them on campus. We still get our bucks for their, their presence, but we're going to make it some sort of punishment. So they created what they call the special assignment class. The acronym was SAC, and they would get sacked and sent to me. And I had just come out of four years of ROTC in college, so I was ready to be a drill sergeant. And I had more fun harassing harassing those kids. But the one thing that I kept hearing from them was, you can't do that. We have our rights. You can't say that. We have our rights. I got so sick and tired of these snotty-nosed junior high kids asserting their rights. But that's probably how God feels about us. We want to assert our rights. And in Greek culture, that was a positive thing to assert your rights. If you're not promoting yourself, who is? But this concept of humility, this, this Greek word tapainao in the verb, tapainaphrasune in the noun, is the idea of not asserting your rights. Even though you have every legitimate claim to something, you're not going to assert it. You're not going to put yourself forward. You are going to have a, uh, as the Bible would put, a proper perspective on who you are and where you fit within the structure of reality and the structure of authority. This is the idea that the uh, Scripture said when it refers to Moses as the meekest man in the world, in history. He is not meek because he's a doormat and people take advantage of him and run over him all the time and, and mistreat him. I mean, he wouldn't have lasted 40 years if he was that way, trying to take 2 million uh, rebellious, obstreperous Jews through the desert. He would have lasted about 48 hours if that long. It's the idea that he recognized who he was under the authority of God. He understood exactly what his role was. He knew exactly what his responsibilities were. He knew what the limits were. And he was under the authority of God. And that's what humility is. It is putting yourself under the proper authority and staying there. And when you recognize what the authority is in your life, whether it's the authority within business, whether it's the authority in the family, whether it's the authority in a marriage, whether it's the authority within God's creation and the divine institutions, whatever it is, when we are in proper relationship to authority, that's humility. And that gives us the right then to assert our position as leaders and those in authority because we're in right relationship to authority and arrogance is not a part, not a factor of the equation. So Philippians 2.8, Paul says, Jesus Christ found an appearance as a man. He humbled himself. How? How do you hum- humble yourself? By becoming obedient to the point of death. See, humility is directly related to authority orientation. That's the core issue in all of human history because that's the point of satanic failure in eternity past. He wanted to be like God. He was overthrowing divine authority. So humility, genuine biblical humility, is the key issue in spiritual advance. And it's related to obedience. So Jesus Christ humbles himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this last phrase is to emphasize the fact that, that death on a cross was the mo- one of the most humiliating forms, in, in, in terms of human viewpoint, one of the most humiliating forms of punishment in all of history. Only the lowest of the low were crucified. Only the most horrible criminals were crucified. If you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified because that was just only, only the scum of the earth got crucified. And so here is the God of the universe, the ruler of the universe, who has entered into human history to come to his people, but his people rejected him, and they end up crucifying him as if he is the lowest of the low. He is at the bottom of the social echelon to be put on a cross. And yet this is the God that we have, is that he became a servant to the point that he was humiliated in the most egregious fashion, but he was willing to humble himself under the authority of God. And again, we have that word becoming, genomai. He became obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. So that is his path to glorification. He doesn't glorify himself. He is... He humbles himself to the point of death, and the result is verse 9 of Hebrews 2. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. This is what happens in, when at the resurrection in Acts 13.33, God declares him to be his begotten son. That's one of the three passages in Scripture that quotes Psalm 2.7. You are my son. Today I declare you to be the begotten one, emphasis on his eternal reality, but it's the foundation of his future role as high priest. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So he, it exalts him to his uh, present position at the right hand of God the Father, where he is in session, ultimately where he will be exalted as the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is in the future. This is the reference in verses 10 and 11 that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. That includes all creatures, heavenly, that is angels, holy angels, as well as fallen angels. And that every tongue should confess, that is, admit or acknowledge, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that happens at the end of the tribulation period when the Lord Jesus Christ returns as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But his path to glory was through obedience to the authority set over him. So let's go back to where we started in Hebrews 5.5. Hebrews 5.5, Christ did not glorify himself. He is not into self-exaltation. This runs in complete contrast to human the human method of operation Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest this was the father's plan the father appointed him that's the whole thrust remember in verses 1 through 4 the whole theme there was that the high priest the human high priest Aaron was appointed by God so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest But it was he who said to him. Now, who is he who said to him? It's God the Father. And we come to a quote from Psalm 2.7. Now, this quote isn't from exegesis. It's application. 
There's just one little aspect of this quote that he's emphasizing. And this is so typical of Jewish uh, methods of, of handling Old Testament Scripture. They would sometimes quote a whole passage, a whole verse, a whole uh, lengthy passage. Peter does on the day of Pentecost, quotes the whole passage from Joel 2, 28 to 32. And he's only emphasizing a point of comparison. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is going to do the same thing when we get over to uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 9 or Hebrews chapter uh, 8 when it talks about the new covenant. He quotes the whole passage from Jeremiah 31, only to make one point. That is, that it says new in contrast to old. So this is, this is just, you have to understand this characteristic of uh, Jewish interpretation. And he is not exegeting or expounding on the principle of the eternal sonship of Christ or even of the whole, all the implications of his being declared the begotten one of the Father. He is just simply pointing out that it is the Father who makes the declaration related to the position of the Son. He doesn't declare it himself. It is the Father who declares his position. He's under the authority of the Father. So it is God who says, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. He's under authority. So also, verse 6, quotes that second important passage that is frequently quoted in Hebrews, Psalm 110, verse 4, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who appoints him. And see, so you have this connection here between the sonship of Christ and the priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood. And this flows out of the, the author's understanding of Christ's position as the eternal Son. Just hold your place there and flip back a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. This is the first time in Hebrews 1 verse 2 that the writer introduces us to the sonship of Christ in terms of his eternal sonship as the Son of God. The uh, first verse began that God has spoken to us, who, who spoke to us at various times in various places, or various ways in time past, has spoken to us, uh, he's spoken in the past by the fathers to the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by who? By his Son. And then he gives us, and we studied this, he gives us these characteristics of who the Son is. And he's defining sonship. It is this Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world, who being the brightness or the flashing forth of his glory and the exact image of his character, upholds all things by the word of his power when he had himself purged our sins. Who is it that purges sin? It's a priest. So at the very beginning, he makes this connection between the eternal sonship of Christ and his work as a priest. Now, turn back to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.14 Because we know then that we have a what? A great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Who? Jesus, the Son of God. So he again connects priestly function to his position as the Son of God. Now in verse 6 of Hebrews 5, he had, in these two quotes from Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 110-4, he ties these concepts together again. It is his position as the eternal second person of the Trinity, and he takes on 
and becomes a high priest because this is appointed to him by God the Father. And then he's going to make application. See, this isn't just some nice little truth that Jesus Christ is a high priest. It impacts how you and I handle suffering, how we handle adversity every day in our life. And that is seen in the next two verses, which we'll get into next time. Lays the whole groundwork for the whole understanding of the spiritual life. So we'll start there uh, next Thursday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to look at the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who sets the standard for true authority orientation, obedience to authority, and what genuine humility is all about. Father, we pray that you would help us to see these things as they enable us to deal with personal problems, personal conflicts, uh, whether it's marriage, family, uh, work, whatever it is. As believers, our role is to handle these things within the framework of biblical humility and orientation to authority. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.